Several years ago, I had a, a, a lady that started attending the church I was pastoring, and she came because she had family in our church. Her sister and brother-in-law, niece and nephew, and nephew played on the worship band at that church. And she started attending, and she would sit at the back, and she wouldn't say a whole lot to us. She would greet, she would be friendly, but that was about it. Uh, occasionally her son, her teenage son, would come with her, but he wouldn't stick around and he would leave. But over time we got to know uh, her a little bit, and, uh, and I'll call her, i got to give her a different name, um, Gloria, thank you. I'll call her Gloria. And so Gloria kind of hung around with us, and we got to know her a little bit, and eventually I got to meet her husband, and her husband was in sales, and he made quite a bit of money, uh, but they had, over the duration of their marriage, they had taken just about everything they had made, all their money, and they had turned it into a very comfortable lifestyle. They lived in a beautiful home in a neighborhood that was uh, kind of discreet and removed from the rest of town and uh, had an in-ground swimming pool. It was a beautiful place. And they had, both of them had really nice cars, and they had all the toys. They had the jet skis and the boat. And they donated a pool table to our youth group. And so we took a group of young uh, teenage men to move a pool table. If you've never moved a slate pool table, you know it takes young teenage men to do that. And so we went and we did this. And, and I just had the sense that, you know, this, this couple is really living uh, in a lot of luxury, or at least more than I was used to. Within a matter of months, things changed, and she came one Sunday, and she was sitting at the back, and she was crying while I was preaching. And I made the mistake that I often make, that I said something that was profound and moved her, and, the, and she was hearing from God as well as from me, and her life was about to change for the better. Instead, after church, she took me aside and said, can I come talk to you this week? And I said, absolutely, yeah, come and, and we'll visit together. And when she came and talked to me, she shared the news that she had just found out that her husband, in addition to all of his other toys, he had added one more, and it was another woman. And so he had been having this protracted affair, and she said, I, I packed my suitcases and I moved out. He was unrepentant and he was not willing to give up the next thing that he was playing with or the thing after that. And so over the next couple of months, we watched her walk through the end of her marriage and the divorce that followed. And then she came back and she told us that she was really scared because they had spent everything. And then as some of you are well too well aware of, you know, divorce takes what you don't have. And divided it and split it up and, and she made the wise move of saying, I don't want any of our things and I don't want any of our debt. <laughs> Except that meant she had no job. She had not finished her education. She was now middle age and she was getting an apartment with a credit rating that had been ruined, and she was struggling. 
And so she went from having a really nice car that was only a couple of years old and a house with an in-ground pool and all this kind of luxury to I have no idea how I'm going to pay next month's rent. Just suddenly and dramatically and painfully. And so we started walking alongside her and I was blessed there in that church. I had a couple of people who had come together and had felt God leading them to begin a ministry to those who are in financial crisis. And so we plugged her in to this uh, ministry that we called Five and Two. Some of you might catch where that comes from, five loaves and two fish. So we walked her through the system of Five and Two and she walked with them and we tried to investigate what can we do to help. And she came back uh, through that, through the counseling and the encouragement and the remediation that we did. And these two people in our church came and sat down in my office again after a few months and said, you know, Gloria isn't going to make it. She has no income. But Gloria had started school years and years ago to become a nurse. And she dropped out when she got married. And they said, you know, if Gloria could go back to school to finish up a nursing degree, she has a chance. And I said, okay, well, that's great. But they said, you know, with her credit history, with the things that are going on with her husband, she's not going to get student loans. And probably shouldn't. And so I said, okay, well, uh, hmm, how do we send somebody back to college? So we started praying about it, and, and what transpired was these two people sat down with her and figured out exactly how much it was going to be for her to go to community college to finish up uh, her licensure to become a registered nurse. And it was going to take two years. And they figured out exactly how much each credit hour was. And they put together a budget for her. And then they went around and they talked very quietly to some specific other people in our congregation. And then they went to some people who were outside of our congregation, just some people who were concerned about things that are happening in our society. A couple of them were people who did not know the Lord at all, but they just were very vocal about, we don't like people in poverty. And by the time the conversations came to a head, those two people came back and they sat down in my office and they said, we think we can pay for her two years of college. We have enough people signed on to give every month for the next two years just enough money that we can pay for every credit hour without having to borrow. Which is great, except for if you've been around community colleges, you show up on the first day of school and they say, your bill is about you know, $2,000, $3,000, where's your check? And so you know, we have people giving month to month, and we can cover the whole cost, but we need a big chunk right now. And so there was a guy in our church that went, and he borrowed against his retirement account, and he went in there, and he paid for two years of college at one whack. I'll just pay it all. And that monthly money that just trickles in, you can put it into my retirement account to pay that back. She never paid a dime. Finished school, is now a registered nurse in Illinois, and has been able to be put back up on her feet. Now, I want to tell you, I wish I could tell you that Gloria's story is a story that's been repeated over and over again. But in my ministry, Gloria's story stands out as an incredible exception because people came together and they found a solution and the person who was going to change was extremely highly motivated to change. So in that, 
as we talked last week about the reality of the brokenness of relationships that are part of poverty and need, today I want to talk to you about what it means to have a plan for healing. And so as we look at this, I want to remind you, because I am preaching, and so I want to look at God's Word. There are things that God tells us in His Word about how He wants us to live and the economics of His kingdom. And in fact... Apart from speaking about the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ said more about money than any other topic. So let that sink in for a little bit. You think God doesn't care what's in your bank account or what your paycheck's going to look like? You are wrong. He cares deeply. And so in Isaiah, when Isaiah was looking at how the people of Israel were going to be paying a price for their waywardness against God... There was a part of being brought back in right standing with God that had to do with economics. There was a part of redemption that had to do with money. And the people were going about all kinds of spiritual work trying to gain God's favor. And one of the things they were doing was they were fasting. So they were doing without food and without drink for a while, trying to ask God, would you get us out of this jam? Now in America today... Fasting may not be as popular as it was in Israel back then, but it might be that you would say to God, you know, I'll go to church on Sunday if you would make sure I can cover my bills, Jesus. Or some of us, some of us have done this, and we said, I'll, Jesus, I'll put $10 in the offering plate today if you'll make sure that I have 900 at the end of the week to pay the rest of the bills. That's kind of bargaining with God. And that's what the children of Israel were doing. They were saying, we'll fast, we'll give up our food, but then you've got to get us out of the jam. And this is what Isaiah heard from the Lord. And he spoke to that back to them saying, you humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance. We're sorry that we've made a mess and we want it to be fixed. Bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind. You dress in burlap and you cover yourselves in ashes. Is this what you call fasting? Do you really think this will please the Lord? What follows is one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. No. This is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry And give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them. And do not hide from your relatives who need your help. Yeah, even back then I think they had call screening of some sort. (laughs) Then, then your salvation will come like the dawn and your wounds will quickly heal your godliness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will protect you from the behind. Then, when you call the Lord, the Lord will answer, yes, I'm here. He will quickly reply, remove the heavy yoke of oppression, stop pointing your finger and spreading vicious rumors. So here's what God said, you know, you think I can fast or I can go to church or I can put some money in the offering plate or maybe, you know, I can invite pastor over for lunch, which never hurts. But 
God said, what I really want in spiritual activity, what I really want from you in terms of how you serve me, what looks like godliness, is to do these kinds of things for people who are wrongly imprisoned, who are oppressed, who are doing without those relatives that are hurting. And some of us have been there and we have been the recipients. Somebody gave it to us when we really needed it. And some of us have been there, some of you have been there just in the last week because I heard stories from you, how God brought needy people across your path and what do I do? And I have a $20 bill in my pocket. Do I give it to them or not? And I got to tell you, as I preach this series, I know that in part, in my mind, I'm thinking about how do we alleviate poverty in Africa or Asia or homelessness in downtown Wichita But when we really bring it into focus, we're talking about what do I do to help that person I love? And how do I do this in a way that does not hurt and compromise and continue the the problem and deepen the problem? So we know that we're called to make a difference. We know that part of God's salvation That's what we read. Let me go back one. Part of God's salvation, then your salvation will appear, comes as we live out this kind of righteous living. So, I told you I was going to get into the really practical. So we talk about poverty and brokenness. And last week we said that we need a new diagnosis. Because here in America we tend to we tend to define poverty and in the Western world and the world that has plenty, we tend to define poverty as those who are materially lacking. They don't have as much stuff. They don't have as much money. But we saw last week and and you can see it in, in terms when you go outside of the Western world that people define poverty, those who are in poverty often define it as broken relationships. And what I'm lacking is I don't have someone to help me. I don't have the kind of access that comes from knowing the right people and having the right people care for me. And so we need to change that diagnosis. And so we need that second opinion kind of from a doctor where we get a second opinion, a different diagnosis, because we treat the symptoms, but we don't really treat the disease. So we give out the $20 bill and they'd get to make it through the next 24 hours, and then they're looking for somebody else with a $20 bill. And so I suggest that once we change the diagnosis, then we need a different kind of a treatment plan. For any of you that have been chronically ill, you know what I'm talking about. You go into the doctor and they say, okay, this isn't going to just change with one course of antibiotics. This is, you're really sick and it's going to take a while and you need to follow this plan. And that plan might include multiple doctor visits. It might be, include going to a specialist. It might include some kind of radical therapy. It might include physical therapy. It might include rehab. But we've got to work this through and you need a treatment plan. And so what I want to talk to you today about it is having a different kind of a treatment plan for how we interact when we help those who are in poverty. And brokenness. Again, I got to tell you, I got to say this because I'm leaning heavily on this book. Um, in the video at the beginning, you saw Steve Corbett, uh, Brian Fickert's the other guy. They uh, they work for the Chalmers Center on Poverty out of Tennessee. And uh, if you've never read this book, it's a fantastic read. Um, and I'm pulling a lot from there. So if you think, man, Pastor Hink is really brilliant. Now I just read a book every once in a while. Um, 
But here's what happens. When we help without a plan, when we decide we're going to help somebody without a plan, our help, our, our intervention of addressing poverty usually is rather random. In other words, we help because we just saw something or encountered something that looks like poverty and suffering and need. Years ago, I had traveled with my sisters to Southern California. We had come together, we flew together to go to my aunt's funeral. She had passed away and she meant a lot to us. In fact, Linnea is named after her. And so we flew together to San Diego. I rented a car because none of my three sisters wanted to drive in Southern California. I said, I got it. So we rented a car. We went to the funeral. And we were coming back to the airport. And I had withdrawn some extra money because I knew we were going to be with family. And I thought, we'll go out to eat. And, so, and we were going back to the airport to fly home. And I had not spent that money. And I pulled up at a stoplight just before going into the entrance to the airport in San Diego, and there was a guy standing on the corner holding a cardboard sign, and here I was in a beautiful rented car with the sunroof open in San Diego, and I felt like a worm. Here I was, I had just enjoyed this time with my family that I love, and even though we had laid my aunt to rest, we had laughed and we had loved each other, and I was sitting in this car with my three sisters, three people I love spending time with, And here was this guy that looked really rough with a cardboard sign. And so I reached in my pocket and I pulled out a $20 bill and I held it out of the sunroof. And that guy reached over across the car and grabbed it as I pulled away. And my three sisters said, looked at me and said, what did you just do? They hadn't even seen the money in my hand. And one of my sisters said, did you give him a high five? And then I said, no, I think it was a high 20. <laughs> and then I, then I thought to myself, what did I just do? You know, because I did that because I'm in a really nice rental car with my three beautiful sisters and I've come off of a weekend that has just been an amazing and an emotional experience and I feel incredibly blessed. And here's a guy that I just feel very sorry for and the guilt of my heart led me to just pull out a $20 bill and let it go. It was incredibly random And in hindsight, it was incredibly ineffective. I probably bought him a little bit more beer. And when we help that way without a plan, our help lasts as long as our inspiration lasts. So I have to to admit, I have to confess, that by the time I got to the rental car place and we grabbed our bags and we went into the airport and we checked in and we sat down once we got through security, I had forgotten entirely about that guy and I no longer cared. And my help was over. And that was all he got. And as we do poverty intervention that way, our tendency is to do things that do not last, and our tendency is to do things that seem good when we do them, but over time they tend to do more destruction than they do to help people out. And so I would just suggest that when we help without a plan, sometimes we're no longer helping. We're actually perpetuating things that we're trying to stop that we're trying to break the cycle and start something new. So we need that plan. We need a treatment plan. And here's what I suggest. If you were paying attention in the video, Steve talked about these three things, relief, rehabilitation, and development. 
And understanding the differences is important. So let's talk about relief first, because this is what we really like to do. Relief is what we do when we give resources in a time of crisis. Some of you have done this with me. We've gone to Joplin, Missouri, right after the tornado when everything is destroyed and people's homes are gone and their, their place of work is gone and they can't even find their clothing or find food. And we went down and we helped them out. We gave some relief. This is what we do at the food pantry twice a month. We have people come in because they don't think they have enough food to get through the month. And so we hand out food to them and we help them. We give them a little bit of relief. These are resources given in a time of crisis. And the goal of these resources is just to keep somebody alive. That's it, survival. And so in in macro terms, we do relief work around the world when you have an earthquake in Haiti and you send all kinds of people in going, keep this from getting out of hand where thousands of people die. That's relief work. I have friends that that's all they do. They do relief work around the world and wherever the flashing lights are, they run in with incredible resources and make sure the fewest people die. Relief work with us one-to-one tends to be when somebody comes and is crying and they go, I'm about to be evicted or I don't have enough gas to get to an interview or, you know, I, I, I've got to pay this bill and if I don't pay this bill, I'm, I'm sunk and we help them survive. And here's the key. Relief should take place seldom. It should be immediate And it should be temporary, and I would just say very temporary. We hand something out, we'll keep you together, and that's all you need. Years ago, my wife and I went through a really tough period of time, and I had an accountability partner that I met with once a week, and we had made a mistake in our checkbook, and we had paid some bills, and everything came through, and we overdrew our account. And uh, some of you have been there? Amen? feels great, doesn't it? And so Friday morning came when I had coffee with Jim and I went down there to have coffee with Jim and I didn't even know how I was going to pay for my coffee because I'm sitting here going, how many days till payday? And we made a mistake that just took everything out of our checking account and I sat down there with him and right away the look on my face, he said, what in the world's going on? And I go, well, don't really want to talk about it, but I did a decimal point thing that really hurt us. And right away, I mean, this guy understands relief. And he looked across <laughs> at me and he goes, he's holding his cup of coffee. He goes, how many groceries you got in your uh, refrigerator? Oh, a little bit. How much gas you got in your car? About a quarter of a tank. He goes, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to fill your car up as soon as we're done drinking coffee. Then we're going to go grocery shopping. And I'm giving you 100 bucks in case anything else happens. And I was like, well, wait a minute. And he goes, no, we're getting you through till payday. I, I'm telling you, right there in Panera, I broke down like a baby. I mean, I was sitting there, big old tears, and I go, really, this is what you And then I'm sitting here going, oh, you know, then how do I repay you when I get out of having overdrawn my account? And, you know, and just in that moment of crisis, he says, oh, no, no, you, you don't. I'm your accountability partner. It's my job to make sure you stay on your feet. Now, I guarantee you, if I did that every Friday... We'd have lasted about two or three more Fridays. 
But in that moment, he swept in with relief. When the lights were flashing, he came in and he saved us. And at the next payday, we got down there. We look, we go, we can do this. We're back up on our feet. We're back to the positive. Let's fix what was broken there. And to this day, he has my eternal gratitude for sweeping in and helping us. That's relief. But we don't stay there. We need to talk about what rehabilitation is. See, relief is when some outside force causes crisis. Rehabilitation is needed when it's not an outside force. When we keep doing it to ourselves, relief doesn't matter. When we keep doing it to ourselves, rehabilitation is what's necessary. And this is where, instead of just keeping people alive and helping you survive... The goal of this is to make a cooperative change to patterns in our lives, to change our habits. This is where resources are brought to bear so that we can change the direction of how things are going. And so rehabilitation is I'm no longer going to do them this way, but I'm going to get a new set of tools. I'm going to get new ways of doing things so I don't end up there again. And I'm going to learn and I'm going to pay better attention to how I balance my checkbook because if I do that every week, I no longer need relief. I need rehabilitation. This is harder to do because rehabilitation takes longer. And so here's the thing where we said that relief was, you know, temporary, seldom. Rehabilitation is together. Rehabilitation is evaluated And rehabilitation is celebrated. So this is where we sat down with Gloria and said, okay, your life has come apart, but we think we have a plan. And we walked that plan. Now here's the interesting thing with Gloria's story. We started that plan and they paid for two years of her to be in college. And she worked that through. About a year into that, I left that church and came here to Wichita. And after my first year here in Wichita, she sent me pictures when she graduated from nursing school and had her pinning. And she said, Pastor Hink, I did it. I did it, and I don't owe anybody. They told me I don't owe them a dime. And I wrote back and I said, you do not owe anybody a dime except you owe God the glory. But I, and I wrote back to her and I said, but you didn't do this alone. This isn't just your experience. I got to walk alongside you. And other people, Greg and Kathy and other people, got to walk alongside you through this stuff. And this isn't just your win. This is a team win. The whole team wins. And so back there in Illinois at that little church, they got together. Once she graduated, she came to church the next Sunday after graduation. They had gotten a big old cake. She didn't know it. Big old cake that looked like a nurse. And they celebrated it because they had done it together and they'd walked along and she had told people what grade she was getting because she got good grades and she was willing to come back and say, I got an A in that class. Can you believe it? And so cooperative changes changed the patterns of her life. And she went from a woman who lived at home believing they had plenty of money to a woman who was fully employed taking care of herself. That's rehabilitation. And then development is the next. And development is different from the other two because this is where resources come into play to build an entirely new model. So we came into Gloria's life when she needed relief because everything had come apart and she wasn't sure she was going to survive. 
We rehabilitated things and said, there's a way you can do this if you walk with other people and work with us. And then by the time she graduated, development had taken place. And she was not dependent on others. She now had the ability to provide for herself. She had resources that had created a new model. She went from being a stay-at-home housewife who was relatively uninformed about what was going on in her family's life to an employed woman who was contributing to her own needs and the needs of others. So in development, when you create a new model, you're creating a system that doesn't currently exist. And creating systems isn't usually really exciting. It's not the handing out food at the food pantry kind of a thing. This takes time, it takes thought, it takes strategizing and putting together and then walking with someone long enough to where the old system is abandoned and the new system is entirely deployed and the new system looks like a new lifestyle. That's what development looks like. So that's a plan. We can start with relief, but that's got to end soon. Then we move into rehabilitation and we change the habits and the patterns and that leads us to development, which means we get a whole new system to work with. And I would suggest that there's probably some of you here today that go, I have never had, I have a system. It's a horrible system. I hate my system. And I'd like to have a new system, but I don't think a new system is possible. And I would just challenge that a little bit, but you'll never get there alone. Development requires a community. It requires more than one person. So, as we look at those things then, I want to shift gears a little bit to talking about how we interact with people and our attitude that leans us or leads us into how we work with them. What, uh, what things come from inside us when we walk alongside somebody else. So, there's, there's a couple of words that start with P that I want you to know. One is paternalism and the other is participation. And I want to suggest to you that these two words can apply to so many things, not just money. And in fact, we use these words a lot when we do mission work because mission work around the world is plagued by paternalism. And there's other words that go alongside it, imperialism, colonialism, and things like that, where somebody, usually a white person from America, went into a place where there was very little And the people were barely surviving. And they said, you know, I can tell you exactly what to do. And in fact, I'll come here and do it. And I'll drill a well for you. And I'll plant crops for you. And I'll build houses for you. And I'll do all this stuff. And that's paternalistic. When someone just says, I'm going to drop in here and I'm going to do this for you, that's paternalism. And so here's how I define paternalism. Not necessarily by what you do, but by what you avoid. So avoiding paternalism means that you do not do things that anyone can do for themselves. Let me say that again. Paternalism means you do not do anything for anyone that they can do for themselves. And I just want to, I want to give you a couple of reasons why. When we start doing things for other people that they can do for themselves, in and develop a pattern of that, we begin to devalue those people. I'm going to pick on somebody here. Chris All. So let's say, you know what? We feel sorry for Chris All, and we think that her life has some hardships in it. And so you know what we're going to do? We're going to pay for Chris All's groceries now forever. Now, Chris All might say, awesome. 
No more grocery bill. And so in her mind, she's going to begin rewiring. What I would have done is I would have gone out and bought bread and potatoes and cheese and milk and that kind of stuff. But instead, I'm going to buy a dress. <laughs> oh, there's a conscience speaking for you there, isn't there? I'm going to go buy Starbucks. I'm going to go, you know, all these other things because somebody else is doing something for me that I would have done. But now I don't have to. And what we're doing essentially is saying, you know what, Chris all, we don't think you're capable of buying groceries. Essentially, that's what we're saying. And so we're devaluing her, saying, we're going to buy groceries for you because we don't think you can do it. And I would suggest to you that there are components to what we do systemically in the United States with our system of welfare, where we do things for people that they could do for themselves and we devalue those people. And I don't want to just get into politics, but any time I say, I'm going to do this for you, but you could really be doing it for yourself, I am taking away from their value as a human being. The other thing I'm doing that I want to point out is when we start to do things for others that they can do for themselves, is we're devaluing them, but at the same time, we're overvaluing our own component. And I'm saying, I am becoming necessary here. I am needed here. I'm indispensable. And I would just suggest to you that anytime you start using that word and you think that you're indispensable in a situation, you're about to be removed. Because one thing God will want to do in your life is he will want to remind you who you are in him and who he is in relationship to you. God is indispensable, but any one of us can be replaced. We are not indispensable. And we tend to lapse into paternalism because we want to be seen as a savior. And I want to tell you that I grew up in Africa around a lot of missionary families and a lot of missionaries who did a lot of great sacrificial work. But there were a few missionaries I grew up around that they really, in their heart of hearts, even though they could not admit it publicly, they wanted to be the great white savior. And I'm going to swoop in. And when I walk in, all these black African people are going to go, he's here. Jesus has returned in the form of this person. And what came out of that attitude and out of that paternalism has been toxic. It's been toxic. And so I just suggest that if we put ourselves in the place where I have to be involved because if I'm not involved, this whole thing's going to fall apart, God is probably about to remove us so that we can see that he has to be involved. So when we talk about paternalism, we relate that to participation. So we're not going to do things that people can do for themselves, but we will participate with people. But paternalism takes certain forms. And so I just want to highlight a few of these for you. We have resource paternalism where I have the stuff, you don't have the stuff. And in order for you to have the stuff, I become indispensable. You need me because I've got the stuff, whatever that is. And if that's what's going on, then there's a problem. Whatever the stuff is, even a word from the Lord. If you think you need your pastor because you cannot hear from God without me speaking... God will take me out of the equation so that you can hear from him directly. 
That's resource paternalism. Spiritual paternalism, I already dabbled into that, is where, you know, I have access to God, you don't, and so you need me to get to God. Doesn't always, doesn't have to be that way. One of the things that's incredibly humbling to missionaries is when they think they're the first ones there telling people about God and they start to tell their own God stories and they go, hmm, that sounds an awful lot like the gospel. Spiritual paternalism, knowledge paternalism, I know things you don't know. You know, there's that great story of, um, of the guy that had helped build the plant for, uh, uh, let's see, it wasn't Henry Ford, it was uh, um, light bulb, Thomas Edison. And the plant shut down and nobody could figure out what had gone wrong and they got this guy that said, you got to come back, you helped build the plant. Do you know what's wrong? He said, yeah, I know what's wrong, it'll be $10,000. You know the story? They paid him $10,000. He came in and flipped the switch and everything fired back up. And they go, give us the 10000 back. And he goes, no, none of you knew where the switch was. It was knowledge. And it was knowledge paternalism. And he extorted Thomas Edison, who wasn't a good guy either. But anyway, uh, labor paternalism. You need what I can do. I become indispensable because of what I can do, and you don't get to do it. I do it. And then managerial paternalism is, is where we can move the pieces around. All We can manage all the pieces, and you do not get to manage it. I do that for you. And I would just suggest parents, if you're parents whose kids are reaching their upper teenage years, Beware of these things, because the more you do for your kids as a parent in their upper teenage years, the less they're prepared to do as an adult. So there you go, mom. She's saying, preach, pastor, preach. So make those kids do it, because they'll soon have to do it without you. Participation is different. And so when we start talking about participation paternalism and participation and how they relate. There's some things that uh, participation uh, brings and it usually comes in a spectrum. So participation starts over here and it grows and it leads and it builds and it changes into something different. And so I would suggest that participation starts with coercion. It's a bad word, isn't it? We don't like to talk about coercing somebody, but let's face it, some of us have to be made to do things, right? Brushing your teeth. You know that mom coerced you. I don't know if she promised you something great, but if it was in my home, it was usually negative reinforcement. You will brush your teeth or else, and or else was not pleasant. And so it was more pleasant to brush your teeth than or else. That's coercion. You got to do this. You have to do this. Some of you may have heard me say those things to you and I'm coercing it. I am doing it to you, but I'm standing alongside you saying this has got to happen. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. You've got to do That's coercion. You can get some things done, but that's only going to get you a little way. Not very far. Compliance is the next step. So we go from doing things to somebody to doing them for somebody. And so compliance means, look, let me do this and then you'll have it. Let me take care of this for now, and you allow me to do that. You become compliant and allow me to do that. Consultation is the next. So we go from, you know, allow me to do this to, okay, I'll talk to you about it. Is, I'm going to do this. Is this the best way or is there a better way? 
as we consult with them, but we're still doing it for them. Cooperation is the next, and that's where we start to do it with. I'll do this, and you'll do it, and we're going to do it together, and that's cooperation. And we're still only halfway to participation. The next is co-learning. I'm going to do it, you're going to do it, and we're going to figure out how to do this in a better way together. And we're going to learn this together. And then the final step of full participation is community. Where somebody's doing it and we are responding to what they're doing. That's, that's participation in poverty alleviation. So I, I just want to suggest to you, because some of you might wonder where I have used these ideas, and I'll just tell you right up front that the work that I've done in Africa with our hospital system in Mozambique has gone through all these steps, and we haven't quite reached community. I'm just going to be honest with you. We haven't, I've been doing this for six years now, and we haven't reached that part. But I'll tell you, I started at the top. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm going to be completely honest with you. When I first arrived in Africa and I saw in, in 2012 back at the hospital, I saw where things were. I came alongside and I said, if you don't do this, I will not come back. <laughs> Isn't that horrible? And I kind of threatened them. You have to do this. Or I won't come back and help you with another team. Okay, we'll do it, we'll do it, we'll do it. And I did it to them. I forced them. And then it, it, it moved to this compliance thing. Well, you know, look, I'll do this. Are you going to be okay with that if I do this? And oh, yeah, you know, you bet, Pastor. If you do that, we'll, we'll let you. We'll allow you. And then there was consultation. Hey, I'm going to do this, and do you think that's wise? And I thought I was getting there. I thought, man, I've arrived because now I'm asking the Africans what they need, and I'm, I'm actually consulting with them. Wow, what a great guy. And I wasn't even halfway to full participation. And then cooperation where we're doing it with, hey, we'll do this part, you do that part. And then the, the, the most humbling piece for me was co-learning where I get over there and I go, I have no idea what I'm doing. And they look at me and they go, we have no idea what I'm do, doing. And we go, I guess we're going to figure it out together. And you know what happens is relationship that takes place when you get to co-learning is strong. Because at that point, there's no hierarchy. And I'm looking at my African brother, Raphael, and he's looking at me, and, and he's going, I don't know. And I go, I don't know. And we go, okay, well, let's just pull it, pull it out and let's see what it is. And, and here's the thing. At any moment, his idea or my idea might win. And relationship builds fast at the co-learning part. But community part is where they're going, hey, this is what we're doing, Pastor Hank. And I go, you want help? And they go, not this time. Or just this little bit. You do that, we'll do this. And we're just starting to scratch the level of community. Now for some of you, you might be relating this in your family because you know, you've got a family member that you've coerced them. I mean, you threatened them. If you do not do this, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm going to make your life miserable. And then you maybe got a little compliance. Well, okay. If you insist... Just because i got to make it through this. And then maybe you got to consultation where you sit down at the kitchen table and you go, you know, what do you think? Can I do this for you? Will this work? Maybe you got even farther than that and you thought, man, we're really winning because now we get cooperation. We're actually working on this and we're not in disagreement anymore. And you think that's it? And you're not even, you're about two-thirds of the way there. But when you get to co-learning and you go, okay, we're figuring this out, we're making, we're developing an entirely new system together, 
that's when relationship really builds and shines and strengthens and then community responding too. So how do we put all this together as people in Jesus Christ? Well, here, here's three questions I want to ask you. You know, what are you doing here in this situation? Ask yourself that question. I am beginning to ask myself that question a lot. So when people come and say, Pastor, things have really taken a bad turn and we need help. And it's not always economic. It's not always money they're asking for. I ask myself this question, okay, what am I doing here? What is my role? And how does that role strengthen them? So what is, what is my role in this? Is my role to help them see what they don't see? Is my role to help plug in resources they don't have? Is my role to help them find the resources they have and they don't know they have them? How do we figure out that role? So what am I doing here currently and what should I be doing here? That's where we ask what my role is. And then as we do those things, then we get to start asking the questions, what real substantive changes are needed to create an entirely new model? So here's the thing, you know, and I I have to admit my own struggle with this. We help out with the food pantry downtown. The food pantries, it does an amazing ministry and they're struggling right now. And Pastor Linda down at Rivercrest, she sent me a text this week and she said, you know, we helped out uh, 84 people in April. That dropped to 67 people in May. The food pantry gave food for 67 people in May. In June, that went to 124. So last Friday, uh, a week ago this last Friday, I was downtown there at the food pantry and I walked in. I was like, wow, our shelves look bare. And this is, I mean, this is a valid ministry. We're giving relief to 124 people in one month. And Pastor Linda said, man, we, we need more food. We don't know where it's going to come from. We really need money because they can buy food through the Kansas Food Bank a lot cheaper than you and I can go buy it from Walmart or Dillon's. I said, okay, we're going to pray about this. Let me see if I can come up with some financial resources to plug in. But I'm, I'm still asking the question, how do we get... Mo- and move from just providing relief to providing some rehabilitation here. Because relief is fun. And it relieves that immediate pressure. But if we just keep providing relief, we create another system that is very paternalistic. We create another system where people are reliant on coming down there to Rivercrest every other Friday night to get some rice and beans because they haven't found and developed a new model. And sometimes I ask these questions and I will be completely honest with you, I do not have the answer. But I know this, God does not want us to just keep perpetually handing out food. He wants to do something far greater than that. And so whatever, wherever this fits in your life, whether it's with that family member or that coworker or that neighbor that goes, man, I, you know, can you help me out? Or even that stranger that walks up to you at the gas station or in line at the grocery store or at McDonald's. What am I doing here? What should my role be? And what changes are needed to have a new model in place? We are not going to arrive at the answers to that very easily and probably not quickly. But in doing those things and asking those questions, we can 
become people who give and care and help with integrity. And we don't sentence people to a life of poverty, perpetuating poverty. We don't sentence people to always having to come back and ask for more help because it makes us feel good and it keeps them in line. There's something patently evil about that. And so my friends, as Christians, let's say, God, would you help us to understand how we can break these cycles together and build new models that are going to give you the glory and actually free people from those bonds of oppression that Isaiah spoke about. Band, come on up, and we're going we're gonna to sing together, and we're going to close this. And I know that I've, I've given you a whole lot of practical steps, and we're going to transition into how we do this together as community over the next couple of weeks. But I want to challenge you to think about this, because I know that some of you are going to encounter somebody this week who's saying, can you help me? And we want to be people who help, and we want to be people who help meaningfully and not demeaningly. And so let's ask God to be our conscience. Have his Holy Spirit speak to us. How can we do this in ways that lift these people up and free them from the bondage where they've been caught?